Uh, you know what? I, I feel like it was the opposite for me. Like, you know, you, you leave school and you're supposed to, you know, some people take a break and then they think about what they want to do next. For me, it was like, damn it, that just went wrong. Now I've got to figure out what I got to do next. G'day and welcome to episode 82 of the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Ollie Laleve, and this week we're back as part of the Antola series. Like most Wednesdays, this podcast has been sponsored by LAWD, specialists in agribusiness valuations and transactions. If you're looking to get your foot into farming or rural life, LAWD can definitely help you out. So check out their website, lawd.com.au. Daryl and Gordon is a Jaru native woman and pastoralist who's currently managing 361,000 hectares of country at Lambu Station in the East Kimberleys. Daryl talks about the importance that her grandfather has had on her, shaping her throughout her teenage years and even as she was a young mum at the age of 17. Over the years, Daryl has been a 2018 WA Rural Women of the Year Award winner and was the runner-up in the National Agri-Futures Rural Women's Award. She talks about really starting to strip things back and prioritise on what's important to her, as well as some of the areas which she's looking to have an impact on in the future. I found this chat incredibly insightful as I really got to understand more about Indigenous agriculture and Darylin's approach that she's taking to managing people and providing opportunities for Aboriginal Australians in the agriculture industry. Enjoy the chat. Well, I just wanted to um, first off start off by acknowledging that traditional custodians on the land where I'm at and I have been moving around a little bit and I'd like to pay my respects to the Wiradjuri people, our elders past, present and emerging and extend those respects to wherever people are listening to the podcast today. Darlin, welcome to the Humans of Agriculture podcast. Thank you for inviting me, Ollie. Um, and same here, I'd love to pay my respect to my elders and elders all around this country. We both you know, travel around, live, work and make friends with um, elders past, present and emerging. In terms of your local area, you're a Jaru native woman and, and currently living up in the Kimberleys. So can, can you explain a little bit to us what your part of the world is like? I'd say very different. I mean, I've very different as in what I'm used to. You know, it's more like, you know, the spread out of rural remoteness around the Kimberleys. Um, love it. Beautiful part of the country. Um, yeah, it's, I guess, but also fascinating when I'm, you know, travelling around that way before COVID hit. It was just learning about the differences and, and exactly how different what I do, um, what's happening in the Kimberleys compared to what's happening in your end of the country, your part of the country. And so you're at home uh, on a station. How long, are you, whereabouts was your childhood? Uh, mostly all spent on the station growing up, all around the bush on Lambu area. Um, Holtz Creek is the town nearest town. It's where I'm from. That's what I like to um, say. So when people ask me where you're from, I start with saying I'm from Holtz Creek in the heart of the Kimberley region. And then as we get into more details, I then start sharing stories about, you know, Lambu um, station. That's where I live and work now. But I spent most of my upbringing there um, and a lot of my schooling was spent in Holtz Creek at the local high school. And can you share with us a little bit more about Lambu Station? Yeah, Lambu has been in my family for, you know, as long as I can remember. Um, my grandmother, my mum's mum, Jaja, she's from that part of the country here in Holtz Creek, Jaru country. 
Um, Lamb has been in the family, or well, took uh, my family took back ownership in around about 94, between 94 and 97. Um, and we've been there ever since. So um, my grandparents have been living and working there uh, for a long time. Um, that's where they've, you know, was born and grew up and spent a lot of their time working with um, a lot of the non-Aboriginal pastoralists that came to the area from the 1900s onward. Um, and then I guess, yeah, we came along and we're still there to this day. When you mentioned just then about taking back the country under your management in, was it 94, 97? Um, yeah. What, what was that connection like and, and kind of what happened in that time um, before then? Well, stories from my grandparents, they've told me like when they were growing up in the area, they worked for the pastoralists that obviously bought the area and um, ran cattle there before. Um, so they were introduced to, you know, working with cattle and horses. Um, they already had a lot of knowledge about the land and, and was obviously living, hunting, gathering around the area. Um, built the relationship with non-Aboriginal pastoralists, became really good friends with them. Then in 97, I think it was like, you know, from what I've learned after all of the storytelling was, you know, the Mabo case sort of thing, what happened in um, over there sort of struck that um, idea for family doing the same over here. And it was, I reckon, would have been confirmed and official in 97 when my grandparents came together with all the other families, traditional owners of the area, and all talked about, you know, we've got the, and then there was um, ATSIC back in the days, I can't remember what it stands for, but it was um, a governing body that supported Aboriginal people um, that, for my family, in this case, um, living and working on a past release to then take back ownership of the, the past release and also because they was from that country, they were from that country. Um, so yeah, it's been a cattle business for a very long time. And my family, there's been a number of um, station managers before me, um, and a lot of it was male from my grandfather to my uncles. And then obviously in the last two to three years, um, I stepped into management. And it's, um, it's a pretty exciting journey there. I'm, I'm going to come back to chatting about you managing the, the, the property today. You, you mentioned Halls, Halls Creek uh, and the town of Halls Creek. How many people were there in your school there? Oh, um, I think more than, definitely more than two or I don't know. But I mean, I'm not good with numbers, but I reckon more than 200 kids at the school um, because there's a lot of families. I mean, the... The group, year groups are like from kindy up to year 12. So there was a lot of kids in, in the school back then. Um, yeah, exciting time. Very dark, like very, I went from having more Aboriginal kids to then, you know, a mixture of non-Aboriginal Aboriginal kids. And then a few, like, you know, we had um, other um, cultures coming in, you know, from Africa, from Papua New Guinea, yeah, Fiji. So it was really good, good learning. In terms of the social life. So in my head, I'm thinking of the, the Kimberley is a big, wide, vast space. Was, it, was school really that the ability to meet kids from all over and, yeah, really start to build those friendships? On a small scale, because I guess, you know, the friends I've, I've had, for, you know, I've got, I still, I'm still really good friends with them. Um, you know, one, two of them was you know, African, one is Papua New Guinean, one is Fijian and obviously a non-Aboriginal chick. So there was our little group of friends. Um, for me, I think making friends from different backgrounds was easy because my grandparents obviously had a really good influence on us. Um, and yeah, it wasn't like there was big populations of them. It was if their parents, you know, if work brought them into Halls Creek, then they obviously had to go to school to Halls Creek. And I guess the 
uh, getting to know them and learning about each other's background was really helpful. It kind of gave me, you know, skillful um, abilities to be able to do that later on in my life. Um, but yeah, they were really good people and obviously brought a lot of rich, like richness of, from their culture as well into our school. But the, yeah, just sharing that Holtz Creek isn't the only tower, like it, it, there's bigger places and other places. And that's how we would learn about other places was just from meeting different new kids. That's fantastic. In, in terms of a, a career in agriculture, was, was it always of interest for you? Was it always the path you're going to take or did you have, have various other dreams? That's a really good question because growing up, I mean, we were always going to be around, you know, agriculture, I should say, um, cattle and horses in my case. Um, and I never, th- I've always wanted to be a vet that when I was a kid and then I wanted to be a doctor, then I wanted to be a teacher. So, you know, as a kid, you grow up, you got all this imagination, wild dreams of, you know, you meet someone and then they tell you they're a doctor or they're a nurse or whatever. They influence you and then you want to be like them. For me, I started getting into sports at a young age and that's kind of what that sort of, um, yeah, driven me out in uh, thinking about other dreams. And I've always wanted to grow up playing, you know, professional sports. I was really good at netball and basketball. I got a scholarship in netball. I gave that a go for four years, but then, you know, decided that's not what I want to do. Then I went on to doing basketball professionally and again, got a scholarship for that. That meant I would have to move away from the Kimberleys and that kind of scared me. And I was like, I can't see myself living anywhere outside of the Kimberley. So I'm going to have to turn it down, which I was really sad and disappointed for, but I guess my my passion and love for you know the living in rural areas, um, again being surrounded by what I love the most, which is working with cattle and horses. I've gone on to do other stuff in terms of working wise. I've you know studied business. I've gone and done community management development. Um, done a lot of leadership courses and. Um, yeah, just went in from um, working for Aboriginal organisations to government organisations. Um, but out of everything, I've always found myself going back to the station, working on in the seasons. And yeah, that probably what was my hardest thing was trying to leave that and do something else. Do you ever look back on, and it's one thing to be a professional athlete in one sport, let alone two. So that's incredibly impressive. Have you, have you, do you look back and ever regret that you didn't pursue it for just a couple of years? Sometimes. I'd say for basketball, definitely. Because the Kimberley is so rich on sports. You're always, you know, travelling around the Kimberleys to attend local sporting carnivals and it's always, you know, footy or basketball, sometimes netball. But so even though I didn't chase that and really see where it would have got me, I kind of was like, well, you know what, I can still play basketball and netball because it's always going to be happening in the Kimberleys. Playing it professionally, yeah, I do. I did have some, like, you know, a, a regret moment where I'm like, yeah, was just really disappointed in myself, but I got over it um, and, again, just, you know, figured that life still goes on, not like I'm going to quit playing it. Um, but, yeah, it was just, um, yeah, a little bit, little bit of that disappointment still plays on my mind. Hi, I'm Pia, horticulture and sugar analyst at Rabobank, and I'm here to share our latest insights on Australia's vegetable market. Did you know in 2023, Australia produced over $5.8 billion worth of vegetables, though only 4.3% of this was exported. Like many other countries, the Australian vegetable industry relies mostly on its domestic market. In fact, only 7% of global vegetables produced are traded between countries. But we are starting to see that trend change. Global trade is growing at a faster rate than production, and countries with low cost production are seeing the highest growth rates. 
You can learn more about trends in the vegetable market on our latest Rabo Research Australia podcast, Mapping World Vegetable Trade, or reach out to me via the Rabobank Australia social media channels to learn more. <laughs> oh, we just find other areas to use those skills. And, and one of them has been back on Lambo. So is it correct that you're the only female worker on the station? Um, yeah, well, it was like that in the beginning. I've always been the only female, especially on Lambu, um, working. Like there's been female, as when I was a kid, females obviously worked there. But then when I became of age and was able to work in that space, I've been the only female. A lot of that's changed since last year. I've been encouraging more female to get involved. Um, my sisters, you know, young aunties and friends, they've been coming out and starting to get. So I'm hoping to keep encouraging that because um, women, you know, having that, ha- having a workplace where it's really balanced between, you know, male and female um, colleagues is really, I think, is healthy because I think with the two, you know, working together, it really brings a, a really good mix to the to the workforce. And you're the manager nowadays, so it's a big responsibility. Is it 360,000 hectares? Yeah, yeah. Wow, it's we, a hell of a lot of country. Yeah, we've got, we, we divided, we, we call it, there's a north and there's a south. So there's the northern part of the pasture lease, which is where Lambu's on, the, the um, homestead. And then there's old Lambu, which is the bottom part of the, the 360,000 hectares, where we sublease to a neighbouring um, pastoral company. Um, so I basically just, together, obviously, I have to oversee the whole, um, the property. Uh, but on a smaller scale, I'm, you know, managing 2,000, two, two and a half to 3,000 head of cattle and about three seasonal workers, permanent seasonal workers. And during the season, we've got about 15, 15 people come out, including young people. Yeah, wow. Is, are they, because I know one area which, as a, you were, you were part of the um, Rural Women's Award. So in 2018, you were the runner-up for the National Award, but you were the winner for WA. And one of those areas which you really brought a, a, a voice to the conversation around was around Indigenous people working in Australian agriculture. And the stats, there's only something like 1% of the workforce is Aboriginal. So, yeah, in your workplace, is it a, a whole team of Aboriginal people or is there quite a yeah diverse group of people um, it's a full-on 100 um aboriginal workforce if i look at the pastoral industry like if i'm stepping out of halls creek i'm again you know not happy for example if i'm traveling somewhere to talk about you know meat livestock australia or um indigenous pastoral businesses you go to a, a workshop or a training or a forum or just a gathering, I walk in a room and again, there's like 1% of Indigenous representation. Um, whereas if I go back to Lambu, it's 100% sort of thing. Um, so it's looking at how to, you know, I guess not transform, but I guess transition, you know, from indig- what's your mo- what we're most comfortable with, which is working on, you know, Indigenous business or pastoral business to then going into uh, that upper level, which is when you sit at a manager's level, you want to see more Indigenous managers around the table, having that good balance and, and having these conversations, whereas this, that's not a lot, not a lot of that is happening. So the Rural Women's Award was about bringing that to the table because it wasn't happening in my space. And what struck that passion or drive for me was I used to work for um, local government in Halls Creek, the Shire of Halls Creek. And I was there for three years as their engagement officer. And it meant I travel, you know, all around the Halls Creek Shire. And it was there that I started seeing a lot more of that issue where, you know, like 
What are we doing to address the unemployment rate of Aboriginal people? And even yarning to a lot of Aboriginal people in my area and asking, you know, how come you didn't follow through with that work? What made you leave it? And there was little things like cultural differences or lack of cultural awareness, um, you know, people not sort of, your employer not really having a full understanding of, you know, your lifestyle or your living condition or whatever it is, you know, your past trauma, whatever like that. So there was little things that caused, I feel, that kind of contributed contributed to the increase of, yeah, I guess, unemployment for Aboriginal people. And I wanted to create something that meant that, you know, as an Aboriginal person, if we were to be in control, meaning, you know, if we take full responsibility in a way that we can talk about these two things that aren't sort of, you know, there's a gap, let's, let's look at what is in that gap and, and I guess, bring something out of that to introduce to, you know, employers in, in the Halls Creek area, obviously, just to, to look at, you know, well, you don't want to keep separating. And for me, I felt like stop making excuses for us because, most of the time it's just having, you know, yarn with each other so we can get a better understanding of each other's, you know, our different what's happening in our lives that we can make working for, you know, working for someone easier. And do you think it is honestly at, at the beginning, just as simple as that, as it is having a conversation and taking the time. And it's like first impressions matter, right? So when you, when you apply for a job, like if an Aboriginal person apply for a job, that induction moment is the moment you really want to make it known to the you know, to an Aboriginal person that we're here to support you if there's anything. And that just don't stop there. It's a continuous, you know, it's a working progress. It's a relationship building. And, you know, everyone talk about the mistrust, the lack of honor, all of that can be really, I feel like can really be nailed if you do it at the very beginning and then it continues. So, yeah, more of those. In, in terms for you, who, who have you had as mentors? Because one, I guess, yeah, is one part, managing a station but then also doing it as the only only woman in, in that situation have you got other people that you've really used to yeah to leverage their skills or even just have them as a sounding board yes i have i have a lot of sounding boards now um one in particular really stands out for me which was um the old the previous well i worked for the police force for two years i did like you know i was their admin slash cultural advisor and the officer in charge there dean bailey has become my biggest you know like my my main person i go to for a sounding board because he's honest as and i think that's what i like i like honesty like if i'm gonna mess up like i want someone to tell me straight up you literally f that up sorry for my thing but that's how it is you're right (laughs) um and Growing up, I never had a lot of that for sounding board. Like I've had a lot of good school teachers who've had a big impact on my life and influenced me into making, you know, good decisions. Um, Not always I've made, I've never, I reckon I've made more bad mistakes than actually nailing things for the very first time. And I feel like from all the mistakes I've made, the discipline disciplinary for me was my granddad he would tell me you know there's no such thing as three three strikes and you're out like if you made a mistake the first time you can make exceptions for but the second time it's not you know you really got to get your shit together sort of thing and he was that person for me so it was like if I messed up that was I was going to be dealing with my granddad if someone was to lecture me about making good choices it was a teacher you know Shari Duffy I'm still really good friends with her she's been my teacher in high school she's like a mom to me like a big sister she's played all these different roles and like I feel like everyone that I've met and built a really good relationship with have been a mentor or a role model for me in you know in different ways and I've always been big on learning from other people and learning new things and um, I've always you know grew up with an open mind to taking a lot in and even like processing it in a way that you know reflecting on what is it that I want what do I want my future to look like and 
I guess with all that thinking, because I'm big, I'm an overthinker. I literally, if something bad happens, I'm overthinking it. So I'm so <laughs> good at problem solving because a lot of shit kind of went wrong. And I've I've learned better when things go wrong than trying not to get it wrong. So I'd rather it go wrong. So I have to, you know, bring out different skills and, and obviously to, um, link up with different people to be able to address something good or bad sort of. So yeah, sounding board is Dean Bailey for me right now. My grandparents played a big part in role modeling my my you know early childhood to schooling years. My parents have been you know my inspiration. I've seen their struggle firsthand, and you know our living condition from when I was little always made me feel determined to do something from like do something meaningful in my life. Can you share with like us a little bit more about yeah what that childhood was like? It was hard, like, uh, you know, living out on the station, we were 30 minutes drive from our local school, which meant, you know, my parents, if they wanted to get groceries, you had to drive 30 minutes. And sometimes it meant going without and having to live off the land for a bit because vehicle was an issue. Like it was in the early years of the station family taking it back, you know, when the um, pastoralist before my family left, he basically took everything. Everything was in a rundown condition. So financially it meant we weren't going to see a turnover Um, for at least another five to 10 years, I would have been about, I reckon maybe I was about, I think I was like little, like four, five, six years old. And um, yeah, growing up, it was a little bit um, challenging, very, very challenging, I should say, like living at bush, the remoteness, the isolation, sometimes wet season can play a big part. So, you know, homeschooling was a thing when the wet season meant cutting off the road. So you'd obviously have to use your creativity and find something else to do whilst you're not attending school. So there was little things like that that really shaped my future, I should say. Um, So it meant, you know, being independent, responsible, trustworthy, honest, all of that sort of stuff really started at an early age because we've had, yeah, grandparents were really hardcore, hard-headed, and, you know, you couldn't get away with even hitting a fly sometimes. So. kind of the people I, I was dealing with when I was growing up. Um, yeah, my dad and my dad was a, an all rounds trademan. So he, you know, was always out every day, long hours. You hardly got to see him. Mum was, you know, got sick for some time. And so it meant we had to maintain and, and hold up the house for a bit when dad was out. So all that little learning really built me up for, you know, the person I've become now and, you know, who I tend to keep being, becoming. This podcast has been produced in collaboration with Antola Trading. Owned and designed in Outback Australia, Antola have always been known for making some of the best quality work shirts money can buy. But their latest collection is extra special. As you're probably well aware now, Antola's founder, Alicia McClymouth, has chosen 23 men and women who she sees are doing incredible things across regional and rural Australia as the Antola ambassadors. And... We're here to tell their story through the Humans of Agriculture podcast. Made from 100% cotton, the shirts are perfect for those long hours in the sun and a hard day's work. And what's more, with every purchase of their new season's kids' shirt, Entola will donate $2 to the Ronald McDonald House charity in Brisbane to help those families who have to travel far in order to help sick kids. You can find out more at www.entolatrading.com. around, I guess, building a career and trialing different things? Was it always about um, setting yourself up first to then have an impact? Because there's a party I really want to kind of jump into, but yeah, yeah. Was, was it really about establishing yourself first to then go move forward? Uh, you know what? I 
I feel like it was the opposite for me. Like, you know, you, you leave school and you're supposed to, you know, some people take a break and then they think about what they want to do next. For me, it was like, damn it, that just went wrong. Now I've got to figure out what I got to do next. That's kind of how I've been living for some time. And then I, it all changed when I became a young mum. So I had my son at a, like, you know, 17, turning 18, really young, uh, you know, career was just kicking off. Um, and that kind of was like a big, put a big hold on everything else for me. So obviously it meant it slowed down everything. But what it did for me was really, I feel like that was like when reality hit me, I thought I had to think serious. Well, not like serious where if you F up, you won't um, get it done. It was just, it was just meaning if I want it now, I needed to work extra harder for it because you become a young mum in this community. The norm is, oh, since you're a mum, you just don't have to work. You can, you know, live off suddenly. My granddad was the only person in my life that, you know, when I became a mom, I just thought straight away, oh, I've got to stay, be a stay-at-home mom. That's it. Career is over. I won't be doing anything until this kid turns 12 or whatever, 10. My granddad came in and said, so what? You're a young mom. That don't mean, you know, life ends there. It means you just got to find another way to start doing things. And that if he didn't say that to me, I probably would have been still that stay-at-home mom. So, you know, thinking about stability, um, you know, how to provide, um, being consistent with, um, you know, schooling, um, his schooling, his medical, my, well, all of that sort of stuff. I couldn't believe how hard it got, but it, all of that just really um, disciplined me and made me think, you know, I have to think before I do things. So the establishment kind of happened, I would say, after I became a mum. Five years after that, I felt like things were really falling into place for me. It sounds like your grandfather is just an absolutely incredible person. He was a legend. Like I, you know, he passed away in 2015, but he would have to be the, he, he pushed me every day. It was about, you know, I could never sit still because he was all about there's more you can do in a day than to think you can't sort of thing. And like, if I thought about starting something, he'd say, if you're going to start that, then you're going to have to finish it. You know, don't, don't be a half ass. Don't do <laughs> So all those little things, it used to put me off and frustrate me. But as I got older um, and maturing a lot more, I kind of started seeing the bigger picture. And I was like, you know what? You're right. I should, yeah, I should really be like that. And now as a manager and a mum, it's also, it, it is quite nice if you're passing on that advice as well, that don't start half things halfway. <laughs> Exactly. Like he was, he predicted some of part of my future. Like he always believed in me. And I think because he believed in me so much, it started making me believe in myself and even believing that, you know, as even as a mom, as a woman, you still can do things. Anything's possible. If you're badly, you know, passionate about something, nobody should stop you from it. You're always going to have obstacles. Like I've had I had to jump more hoops, obstacle causes. Like I really feel like I could do a lot of these things with my eyes shut now. But it really fed more of like, well, you just said no to me. Like, that's not right. I don't believe in that. Like, I feel like I could do more. So, yeah, it was like really telling myself I can do it. I can do it. Even when people didn't believe in me, doubted me, judged me, criticized, you know, tell me to my face, discriminated. It, literally all of that didn't really stop me from, you know, chasing after what I wanted, but also believing that I could do it as well. And I think that's a, an awesome piece to really like move to the next part, which is, around the influence that you're having in your community, but also I'd say nationally. And, and I think the Rural Women's Award shows that absolutely. But at, at what stage, you, you mentioned that your grandfather sometimes maybe had more belief in you than you actually had in yourself. But at what stage did you realise that you really had influence? Um, oh, oh, yeah. And people were really looking at you as an example of what they could be. Honestly, I... 
I used to think about that. Like I remember after winning the Rural Women's Award, I was like, wow, I actually won that. There was not a really, like I felt like it only just begun. Like I was like, I just struck a conversation that no one's been talking about. So I was like, well, wow, that's, you know, I feel like I've been, I believed in more that I was influencing people, not just, you know, in the Kimberleys, but again, nationally, when you have these conversations because someone out there heard your story and it done something different for them and then they want to get in contact with you and you're like wow you're you know way over in New South Wales and I'm in the outback of Australia and my signal don't work you're going to have to catch me end of the week that's it <laughs> being social so it's like when you notice someone just constantly and then they say to you I've been chasing you for months and you're like really what for and then they tell you and you're like you, then you start to feel like you're being of influence and I think for me from a like my Jabi and I, granddad, that's what we call him, Jabi, we used to have these conversations, you know, and he used to tell me, always be true to yourself and know what you're doing it for, you know, have that purpose and and don't forget that. And when I started getting a lot of the support from my own people, that really gave me more of that personal drive, like I was doing it for a really good reason. And, you know, we talk, you hear about it in the media, in other places where they talk about in the traumatic cycle, intergenerational trauma. And I feel like, you know, that cycle stops with me if I'm being of that influence and people look up to me and I am that role model and I am a leader, if I consider myself, which I do now more than ever, it's people like us that, you know, are the game changers, are the driving force. And, you know, as long as we're still taking care of ourselves, we're able to make these, introduce change and really support and encourage because people trust in you. And it takes a long time to get that from your own people, to believe in you, to trust in you. It's about, you know, if you say it, then do it. And from an early age, I was always about, well, I want to do that. If I'm saying it, then I'm going to do it. And literally it just, even if I felt like it was getting harder and harder, I still never stopped doing it. And I think that's what people seen in me and just was like, wow, she's actually serious about it because she's gone and done it and it's happened. Um, so yeah, and the, the Rural Women's Award really brought about a different um, energy, a different kind of belief, a different kind of, yeah, everything for people back in my hometown. But again, around the Kimberleys, I've had a lot of people reach out to me and say, you know, I've, I've, yeah, I've, you know, what you're saying is true. Um, I really want to get in contact. How can we support each other? And that's what it's about now for me. It's about leading by example, but again, like challenging what's being said, we can't do it. And I guess demonstrating that if you, you know, have more young Aboriginal or not even young, but Aboriginal leaders who know what they're talking about, come from a lot of experience, then you need to trust in us to be able to introduce that. Well, I think if we go about it this way, change can happen. And I've been, I started in a, in a time where people are always telling us what we should be doing. They're always telling us what's best for us. They're always introducing these new programs without even consulting with us. And we're like, where'd you get that information? Because you didn't talk to the people I know, or, you know, like it, it makes you angry. It brings you different kind. And it, for me, like listening to my granddad, which is why, you know, a lot of what I do comes from hearing their stories and it's, it's kind of what made me want to be the person that I am now, you know, vocal, resilient, determined, but also very neutral and understanding, um, you know, and, and good at listening to what others have to say. Yeah. When it comes to the storytelling piece, which is, is what we're all about around humans of agriculture, is that it's really about celebrating the diverse and vast opportunity, opportunities there are in agriculture. But I personally, as an industry, we have such a massive opportunity in how we can do this more. What role do you think, and from where you sit, does storytelling have in really showing people the the influence that agriculture has, but also trying to get them interested and involved? Yeah, look, um, I, I really, I feel like a lot of it is, you know, like 
having having sensitive conversations are always good too because I know sometimes when you talk about one thing it can lead to talking and bringing out a lot of other things agriculture like I'm lucky because it's very, my family story is very unique it's different like I don't have another friend in this town that can relate to you know how my family are my both my grandparents were introduced into this agriculture from very young age for them so when I grew up it was kind of easy because I was always always I was already living in that environment and I grew up learning it. Whereas if I think of a lot of my friends, they didn't have that. Like I was pretty much, you know, like two out of a few that were still was able to still have family living on their own country, whereas others were taken from their country. So they didn't have that, what I had. So I find having conversations and trying to encourage and whatnot is different because I can live to tell a story that's been passed down to me for a generation. But I'm also in a position where from my upbringing, from the storytelling from my grandparents, I can shape the way I feel and see that we could do something different with and have a different kind of conversation where I'm acknowledging that that might not be the other family story, but I'm in a, I'm in, you know, I'm in it to be able to support that and see what I can do to be able to influence them back into that space or find a way within agriculture to say, well, this is how I feel is culturally appropriate or is, you know, in some way can engage and bring in other Aboriginal people or even find the right people to have conversation to start something in their own community. So, yeah, I guess that's probably what makes me different to, you know, a lot of not a lot of other people, but I guess the people I know of who I've been having conversations with. So I feel like I can talk about that because my story is different, whereas someone else might not see and view it the same way I do. You know, they, they could have had a lot more, um, you know, traumatised kind of upbringing and things that have happened in their area very different to mine, which is one thing I've learned. And I had to be very bit more considered about. So when I tell stories, I'm always mindful of the audience. You know, I want to be able to tell a story that's not going to upset someone, not going to make someone angry. But again, my story is my story. And again, it's, yeah, it could be different to someone else's. And I think to your point as well is really around that, yeah, broaching and bringing in those sensitive issues in a way that's respectful, but also actually bringing them to the surface so we do start talking about it. Exactly, because I met a chick in South Australia during the 2018 Women's Rural War, and she said to me one time, we were having dinner, and she said, which which really made me think deeply about this, she said, Darren, um, you know, I'm a fifth-generation farmer, but I went to a workshop where I got up and proudly said, and she's a, um, a non-Aboriginal, so a Gadio chick, she got up and said, you know, I'm a fifth-generation farmer, but there was an Aboriginal woman in the room who turned around and said, oh, shame on you, you should be um, ashamed of yourself because this country was... So that for the first time, I was having to have a different conversation because she said, I don't want to disregard this woman because I believe in all of that and I want to support that. How can I go about it to make sure she, you know, she can still come out and have that access to cash? So I thought, you know, you're a good woman, like seriously, like for you to acknowledge and recognize and really in respectful way, respond to her, I thought, because and then I shared, you know, the Kimberleys and from what I've learned back this way, that gave her the confidence to go back to, you know, her farm or and, and go back and see that lady and have a yarn about that. And I, you know, growing up in Hall Street, you don't think these conversations are ever going to happen because there's only few, we're not exposed to a lot of, you know, diverse issues or things that you get to hear on the media and, and what's happening in other people because it's so isolated, meaning you don't get to, yeah, you're not, you're not part of all of that stuff. It's when you step out and meet different people and be part of different things that you get to hear about, you know, what else is happening in, in the world. Um, Do you have, have a moment, whether it was around some of the travel with the Rural Women's Awards or, or vice versa, where, yeah, like it was actually really confronting of how, how the world 
exists outside of Halls Creek? Very confronting. Like I went to, we had to, for the national awards, we went to Wagga Wagga, sorry, not Wagga Wagga, before, the nat- before that, um, the national announcement, we went to Wagga Wagga and I remember walk, I, this is what I do. So when I travel around Australia, I always look, especially when I'm going to the eastern side of the, to Australia, I'm always looking for more Aboriginal people because we're used to it in WN and the Northern Territory and I've never traveled outside of those two states. So when I started traveling away from them, I started looking for, and I couldn't see another dark person that was Aboriginal. And that was confronting for me because I'm like, well, I know there's Ab- Aboriginal people in the area. And then I got to Wagga Wagga and the first person I meet is an Aboriginal lady, but she's really fair skinned. But in her accent, like there's this thing we got going where you just know it's another black person. And so I remember instead of being confronting and say, oh, are you Aboriginal? I said, oh, who are you from? Who are you from? Where are you from? And she looked at me I was like, how did you know that? And I'm like, oh, it's, I don't know. It's just that connection you got. So it was a more respectful way to ask her. And then she did. And, and she said, um, yeah, my family are from here. I'm from such and such tribe. And I said, Wagga Wagga, what does that mean? And she said, oh, place of many crows. And I'm like, you know what? That's very similar to back home. Wagga Wagga for us means crow. Um, and so it was really good to really connect that way. But it is very confronting when you leave Hall Street because you're out of your comfort zone. You know, I still get, when I'm traveling to Perth, even that I'm out of my comfort zone. When I go to the Northern Territory, it's not as much because, you know, Aboriginal people are everywhere. But you go over that way and it's even more confronting. I freaked out with the way the flights happen over there, the airport, the shopping, like, you know, you're always worried because what I don't do, and I'm glad I don't do this, I'm not always big fan of social media, like watching the news and getting scared by what you're seeing through the news and social media. I like to just, you know, get in there and experience things firsthand. So um, it took, a, obviously, a lot of traveling to learn that way of doing things. Um, but, yeah, when it gets confronting, I'm always phoning my family, having a yarn, you know, sharing things. And then they just remind you of why you're doing it. And that gives me that strength to just not feel fearful of, you know, the world's different when I leave Hall Street. Thank you for sharing that. That's really interesting. With When you went back to Hall Street, and I'm not sure if this happened before or after the Rural Women's Awards, but... You, you are incredibly passionate about the next generation and really bringing them into agriculture. It's something which you've been able to do through Lambo. So where, where did that idea come from? I feel like it's come from, because I've been such a big, like I've always helped people my whole life. I love helping people. Um, it's come from constantly going out of my way to help people. And it just came from having yarns, you know, whether it was at the pub, in the shops, on the streets, Whenever we had family funerals or, you know, family barbecues, I'm always yarning with other young people, just, you know, just I'm interested to know what's happening in their space. And the more I've been doing that, the more I've been hearing, you know, they're, they're finding it hard to get a job or they've left this job because they can't deal with their employer. Um, that Yeah, all of that stuff that I've experienced as a young person when I was in the workforce for the very first time. So that's where that passion has really come from. And I love helping my own countrymen and women. Like, I really believe that we can get... There's, I don't even believe, I know that there's a cycle that we like to, you know, repeat, but I feel like, you know, it takes one person to really introduce change. And if, you, if you're that person, you feel like you can drive it and, and really influence, then I shouldn't have that expectation where if someone's going to give it a go and I'm going to be so hard on them and be like, well, do it like this. It's not about that. They've got a different way of doing it. So I've had to be more accepting of everyone's got a different way of going about their day to day. And I feel like, taking away that expectation and, and letting allowing them to do it in the way they can do it. I feel like that's the only way you can change them and not, you know, forcing them and putting things on them. And even 
not even making them feel bad if one thing don't work out right for them. And even sharing that saying, you know, don't be so hard on yourself if that didn't work out, you know, don't give up on yourself. But it's easy to say all these things so passionately, but being, you know, you got to walk beside them as well. You've got to travel that journey with them. You've got, it's almost like you've moved into their house and you're helping them clean their house because the minute they get slack and want to give up, you're there, you know, telling them, no, no, get back on your feet, keep doing it. So that's how I feel a lot of the influences came from that people started seeing that I was with them right through and supporting them even when days got darker for them, really getting them out of it. It can get tiring. And I've had a lot of my family say, you know, be careful, take time out. And, and I've been doing that a lot better now to, you know, reset myself as well. Cause it can, in a community like Holtz Creek, you can, you know, with everything that's going on, it's easy to absorb a lot of the negativity can really get you down in the dumps and, you know, depression kind of just happens all over again. So it's knowing my own strengths and weaknesses and knowing when I'm needing help, um, all of that sort of stuff was new, but I do better now. Um, but a lot of, and I guess a lot of what I've been doing, the work I've been doing, the people I've worked with, you know, the give and take kind of idea sharing, I'm not going to be jealousing, <clears throat> you know, the neighbor across the road, if he's going to look at how I do my household and he want to copy that, that's good. If that means I'm influencing them like that, then that's a good thing. And it's sharing that kind of, um, that kind of uh, celebration with other Aboriginal people be like, we shouldn't be tearing each other down. You know, if that person over there is doing good, we should get together as a community and support them. I remember when I started, you know, the leadership journey for me, it was learning about the negatives, the positives, you know, these people don't get along. And I knew for, from that on, that day on, I didn't want to be like that. So I guess, you know, being true to yourself, if you know yourself very well, God, you know, no one can really make you feel uncomfortable. No one can tell you how to be different. You know, I, and I'm very big on that, encouraging other people about, you know, if, if that's what you want, then do it. You know, you've got support. So, yeah, and a lot of organisations, you know, heard about the Rural Women's Award, you know, give and take. They've always take, um, taken ideas from it. And I've just jumped on, you know, their um, boat and supported them because after winning the Rural Women's Award, a lot of stuff been going on on the station that sort of um, I couldn't, wasn't able to um, start the program immediately. So what I did was supported other local organisations and services that were wanting to do very similar things and say, you know what, Lambu can be of this. At least I know I'm still going to be able to provide that, but I really want to see where this goes for you. So I'm happy to support you and provide all the resources I can from my end. Even the network sharing, everyone, the network I've built from the Rural Women's Award, I was able to share those networks with other services so that they too could get that kind of, you know, a different kind of support and resource. And it's really good to see a lot of that's happening now all from, I guess, my work before the Rural Women's Award, even until now, like I, I do a lot of work with everyone still, so. So on that, what's next for you? I'm not really sure. Like I'm, there's like a, I think I've got, I had, a, I've I signed a five-year contract as a manager for Lambu, and, you know, there's a lot of good stuff looking up for the station productivity-wise, but also, you know, turnaround profit. Um, and I guess just, building more and bringing, you know, non-Aboriginal and Aboriginal pastoralists together. I feel like that's where I'm at, that reconciliation stage where really being the middleman for not just um, local organisations and pastoralists, but also, you know, in the government sector, um, joining up and, and really working together of the influence I've built so far, I guess. The other question which I ask all the podcast guests which come on the Humans of Agriculture podcast is if you got the chance to go and talk to some year 10 students, whether, wherever they may be, what would be some of your advice to them around why they should pursue or look at pursuing a career in agriculture? 
I tell you what, agriculture is the most, I don't know, it's just something special about this um, part of the world. You're everything, you're doing everything. You're outdoor, you're indoor, you're, you know, communicate. You work on a lot of things you don't even realize you are. I started on the station and it's given me all the life skills, all the work skills I never believed I had and stepping in, it gave me the right mentality, but it also bring a different kind of thing of you. You know, you, some of us do it because it's therapeutic, but when you work in that, just the land itself is something about working in agriculture brings a very different energy that you would not get if you were in an office, you know, in a nursing or whatever it is, wherever someone might be thinking, but it's special. And um, I guess, giving it a go and not sort of, you know, like having big expectations. Like if you're going to give it a go, do it because it's, it might start something different, something new for you. It can unlock a lot of you that you don't know you're holding in onto. Um, and that's what it did for me. Like I didn't think I'd be back at it, but it really did help me. Like the indoor, the outdoor, it gives a really good balance. You're not stuck in the one place you get to branch out. If you're on a sheep farm, if you're on a cropping farm, if you're in cattle business, whatever it is, you might be in agriculture, you get to do yeah different things. It brings different things. I hope you all enjoyed that chat as much as I did. I found it so interesting understanding more from Daryl and about just how her upbringing has shaped her, the importance of family and community for her, as well as how she's looking to have an impact and grow the opportunities for Indigenous people in Australian agriculture. I can't wait to, and fingers crossed I can, get up there at some stage, maybe next year, to go and check out Lambu Station and Daryl's work within her community. Just a little reminder that this Saturday we're continuing our Super Saturday series and as part of our Syngenta Growth Awards winners, we're chatting with Chris Tui, an agronomist with elders based out of Albury, New South Wales. Look forward to chatting to you then. Stay safe, stay sane.